Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Tonight we're going to be in uh, Matthew 11, and we're going to be looking at 2 through 6 together. And we're going to be considering this question of what it looks like uh, to deal with honest doubt, how to deal with honest doubt. So before we get started, we'll pray together, and uh, then we'll get in to see what God has to say to us from the book of Matthew. Father, we thank you for today, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would allow us to open our hearts to what your spirit has to say, that you would help us uh, engage well with this, and that we would leave this place changed through you. I ask all these things in your name. Amen. So we're talking about this question of honest doubt. And as I was thinking through this passage and thinking through this subject, uh, I thought of a a story um, that I like to joke about with one of my cousins. She uh, she had a friend one time that she knew uh, who was um, really a a good soul. She's a tenderhearted soul. And uh, one day she went out to the uh, grocery store and the sun was setting and she heard this pitiful little whine at the corner of the building. And as she looked over, there was a, there was a little kitten there and it was, it was dirty and it was cold and it was wet. And her heart just went out to this kitten and she decided, I'm gonna go ahead and take this kitten home with me. So she went over and she got it and she took it home and she washed it and she fed it and she took it in her house. And everything was fine for uh, a couple of days. But um, then this kitten started acting kind of strange. Uh, her friend would come home from work, and the kitten would be hidden somewhere, and then all of a sudden would jump out and ambush her, as if it had been stalking her. And then at night, sometimes she would notice that it would jump up on the bed with her and start scratching. And at the end, the kitten got really aggressive and would seemingly come out of nowhere and just pounce right on her face at night while she was sleeping. So, you know... Uh, Y'all are probably thinking what I'm thinking. Well, it's a cat, and cats are evil, so, you know, par for the course. (laughs) But, (laughs) well, she had some honest questions about this kitten, and she wanted to see, is there something wrong with this kitten? Like, is it some food deficiency, or is there some disease going on? Has it had all its shots, all those kind of things? So she decided to go to the vet, and she went to the vet, and uh, the vet started examining the kitten, and the, the vet looked at the kitten and looked at her and said, so you found this kitten outside, huh? She said, yeah. And then the vet said, and it's been pretty aggressive. It's been stalking you and jumping on your face and stuff like that. And she said, yeah, what is wrong with this kitten? And the vet looked at her and said, um, well, your first problem is this isn't a kitten. This is a bobcat cub. <laughs> So that pretty much explains everything else because it's learning how to kill you. So we need to figure out what to do with this bobcat. So I'm sure the bobcat went to live a nice happy life in a rescue place. But see, the point is my cousin's friend had a good heart and she wanted to help this kitten. But when she got the kitten, she had some honest questions about what was going on with this thing, right? 
And she could have chosen to stay at her house and just say, well, I just got to live with it. It's a kitten. We got to train it. But it was only when she took it to a professional who was qualified to tell the difference between a kitten and a bobcat cub that uh, she was able to get any satisfying answers and get in a better place for her and the kitten. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Matthew 11, 2 through 6 together. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you, have, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. First, let's look together at uh, what it means to express honest doubt, how we can express some honest doubt. So looking back at verses 2 through 3 together, it says John's in prison, he hears about what Jesus is doing, and he sends his disciples to ask him a key question. And he wants to know, I've heard these things, but are you the Christ that we've been waiting on, or is there somebody else that's to come? And we think this is kind of strange, because this is John the Baptist talking. When we think about who John the Baptist is, and we remember he's John the Baptist from the Christmas story, right? He's from the beginning part of Luke where his parents are barren and God has a special plan for them to be the one that brings forth the man that will prepare the way for Messiah. We remember John as he's still in his mother's womb when Mary comes up and Jesus is still in her womb and he leaps for joy. See, John came about by the normal means, but he was brought about for a special purpose from God. And he was going to be full of the Holy Spirit throughout his entire life from birth. He was a very special man, and he was called to fulfill a prophecy that God had given. Jesus himself, later on in this very chapter of Matthew, talks about how John is Elijah, who they've been waiting for. He's the one that's going to prepare the way for Messiah. And we learn from the first part of John that when Jesus comes over the hill where John has been baptizing people for repentance, John looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Even at that point, John knows this is Messiah who we've been waiting on. So it's kind of strange that now, after Matthew shared 11 chapters of what Jesus has been doing, John's saying, okay, are you, are you really the one we've been waiting on? See, John's human, like we are. So he has some questions. And John's situation has changed from the days when he was out in the wilderness and he was just baptizing people and calling for repentance. He's actually sitting in jail at this point. And he's sitting in jail because he spoke truth to powerful people. I know nobody can imagine that in modern-day America, but he uh, essentially is put in prison because he's been preaching that the political leaders of the day, King Herod, is having an uh, adulterous relationship with his sister-in-law, and that's not what God wants him to do. And when he preaches that publicly, she gets mad, and Herod throws, her, or throws him in jail. So he's been sitting in jail, and at this point, he's been in jail for probably a year. And he's been languishing away, and he's been asking, you know, I, I saw Jesus, and I thought he was the Christ, and he, he is, I think, but let's... 
let's see if this is the one that we've been waiting for. See, he's still human, and his situation has changed, and because of that, he's got questions. So he sends people to Jesus to ask him if he's the one. We, like John, sometimes when we experience hard circumstances or we have questions or doubts, we may ask questions. Right? It's hard to imagine somebody like John having that, but we also have those questions. See, we're limited in our capacity to think, and we know because of Scripture that we're also tainted by sin. And because of that, our minds are warped and our hearts are warped. So even when we see true information coming, sometimes we get an altered picture of that. Our vision is skewed. We can't quite see things correctly. So it's natural to have doubts. Maybe we've encountered situations in our lives and had to ask why. Why am I going through this? God, it seems like I was living for you. Why in the world am I experiencing this now? Maybe you have spiritual questions about uh, passages of Scripture or questions about why is this person following the Lord and this person not, even when they had the same background and those kind of things. See, doubts with humans are normal, and we see that through John. But what is critically important is where we go to get our answers when we have doubts. So we've looked at this expression of honest doubt, even in somebody who's a hero of the faith in John the Baptist. And we know that we experience doubts on our own. But now let's look at what it means to follow the right answers. Where we can go to seek the right answers. So look with me again uh, as we read in 4 and 5 here. So they go, they go to Jesus, and Jesus answers them. And he says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So where we go when we seek sound answers is what matters. John has questions. He's seen Jesus and he's heard things about him. Even in prison, he hears about the Sermon on the Mount and he, heard, and he hears about miracles taking place and those kind of things. But something's still not, not quite, he's got to make a decision on who Jesus is. So he sends his people and he sends them straight to Jesus because he knows that if he's going to get straight answers, he's got to go where Jesus is. So he sends his people to Jesus. And Jesus lovingly responds to his disciples. And he tells them to go and tell John by quoting Old Testament scripture. These things are happening. Tell John the miracles are taking place. Tell John the blind people are seeing. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. Messiah is here. He's telling John that the long darkness of sin and brokenness over the world is starting to end. And John should take hope that he is, in fact, the Christ. So he sends his disciples back with this message of the Old uh, Testament promises. And he tells John, light is beginning to break through. And in thinking about this transition of the Savior coming and light breaking through... I thought of a story that, uh, that I like from the Second World War. Um, it's a period in history. I enjoy 
studying military history, and it's a period in history I'm interested in because most of my uh, both of my grandfathers served in the Asiatic theater. So that's a period that's near and dear to me, and I wanted to talk about um, one of the episodes from that war that I, I particularly treasure. You see, in December 1941, mere days after Pearl Harbor, in the Central Pacific, a tiny possession of the United States called Guam was overrun by Japanese soldiers. There were a few Marines stationed there, and they did the best they could, but there were only 300 of them, and there were 5,000 invading troops. So within a couple of days, they were overwhelmed, and the island was taken. And because of that, the indigenous people there, the Chamorros, who were U.S. citizens, experienced a dark night under Japanese occupation. And to the great annoyance of their Japanese captors, they, as United States citizens, wouldn't break the faith. They knew the Americans would come back one day. So they steadily mounted pressure on the people. They were subjected to military justice. They were put to forced labor. They were try there was an attempt to indoctrinate them into the new sphere of influence that they found themselves. And in the end, they were eventually herded into concentration camps in the more rural areas of the island. It was a dark night that had descended over the people, but they knew one day the light would come back. And in July 1944, things changed. The United States Fifth Fleet showed up off the coast, and they had 50,000 Marines this time, and a large concentration of American warships and carriers. And whispers began to spread through the camp, and they said, have the Americans come back? Is it time? Is the dark night going to end for our people? They knew that San Antinian had been invaded, and they knew the Americans would come, but they didn't know when. And they whispered to each other, and they told stories, and they thought, maybe the Americans will come back today. And their whispers and rumors that they heard in the camps were answered when in the distance they heard the guns of the USS North Carolina and her sister ships open up. Massive 16-inch and 14-inch weapons on the Japanese positions. They heard the low drone of American planes flying overhead. And they knew liberation would come. It was a period of many weeks. And as they stayed in the camps and tried to survive as best they could, steadily more and more of the Japanese were pulled away to try to defend the island until eventually they were alone. And they had a choice to make. They could stay in the camps or they could start making their way down the hills. Encouraged by their families, they steadily and cautiously made their way down the hills until eventually they were embraced by American Marines and soldiers. The Chamorro's faith had not wavered. They knew the Americans would come back. And now finally, from this dark night, they were able to experience the light of the Americans there. The Japanese had been driven away, and they were ready to experience the light that they had once knew. When Jesus tells John, listen to these prophecies and remember what Isaiah had to say, what he's telling him is that the great curse had been reversed. Death itself was being reversed. 
There was great darkness over the people and the world had been broken, but the Savior had now come and things would be fundamentally different because Messiah was here. From the great darkness, there was now springing marvelous light, as we hear from the Apostle Paul. John is able to find sure answers to his doubts because he goes to the Savior, and the Savior points him to God's Word. These two are the great answers to the things that we have that we doubt about. See, the Scripture tells us that the devil is the father of lies, and that's his main weapon against us. What he wants to use are lies to twist truth. He wants to manipulate us. But the great antidote to lies is truth, and the truth by which all other truths must be measured is God's word that we have in front of us right now. And by taking our doubts to solid places to find the right answers, namely Jesus and God's word, we're able to fight back against the doubt. The word of Almighty God speaks into our situation and gives us answers that we're looking for. I know in my own life as a younger man, I would struggle a lot sometimes with spiritual questions or I would struggle with uh, areas of my life where I struggled with sin and the devil would use that as a time to um, attack me and a time to attempt to get me to turn away and a time for me to question my salvation. But I was able to go to places like 1 John and say, here clearly it says, if I have the son, I have the life. If my faith is in him, then that is sure, and I can rest on that. And the rest of life is embracing what the Holy Spirit's doing in my heart to make me into the new person that I am in Christ, to help produce that fruit of repentance. My eternal security is assured not because of who I am or because of the questions I have, but on the Savior on whom I rest my faith. We can find sure answers in God's word. We can find sure answers by following Christ. Even within God's word, sometimes we read passages on our own and we have questions about, well, I read this, but I'm not really sure how it fits with other things. See, God gave us his word to be able to be understood. He wants us to know him from this. So there are things that are deeper in here, but this is meant to be known. It's not meant to be a secret that only a few know how to interpret. And oftentimes when we run across passages that we have questions about, we can use passages that are more clear in order to understand passages that are less clear. The Word of God is self-interpreting, and through the Holy Spirit, we have the power to understand what God has for us. And from that, we're able to answer our doubts. We have questions about life. We have questions about circumstances. We have questions about things that we experience. And those doubts are not necessarily bad. In fact, they're a time when we can truly grow. Because if we go to the right answers, and we go to Christ, and we go to his word with our doubts, we can leave it more sure of what we know, and more firmly rooted in him, and better know how to answer our doubts in the future. See, the doubts themselves are not evil, but what matters most is where you go for your answers. So we've looked at John expressing honest doubt, and we've looked at the sources from which that we can find our sure answers. But now let's look at this last part in verse 6. Trusting the truth even when we don't understand. 
Verse 6 reads, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, John has honest doubts about who Messiah is, and he wants to hear Jesus explain who he is one more time because his circumstance has changed. And he's in jail, and he hears things that are Messiah-like, but he wants to know that this is the Messiah for which they've long waited. So Jesus lovingly points him back to the Old Testament, and he points him back to Isaiah, and he gives John a chance to make a choice. And John's choice is the same choice that we have. He, in effect, tells John, I am Messiah, but you're going to have to choose whether you believe that or not. Because when John looked at Messiah coming, he was expecting the miracles, and he was expecting the forgiveness of sin, and he was expecting the teaching and the good news to be preached to the poor, but he was also expecting final judgment of the wicked. So as he sat in jail, he thought, okay, Isaiah tells me these things are going to happen. The deaf are going to hear, the blind are going to see, the lame are going to walk, and the good news is going to be preached to the poor. But also, God is going to come and he's going to judge the wicked. So I'm in jail now under the impression of the wicked. If Messiah has come, am I awaiting my deliverance? See, John is looking for a Messiah based off of who he thought Messiah would look like. And what Jesus tells him is, you've got to make a decision. I'm Messiah, and this is all true, but there's going to be a delay. There's going to be me coming now, but there will be ultimate judgment, but it's not going to be right now. There's going to be a space, and it's not a space because something's wrong or God chose to do a different plan, there's going to be a space because God is merciful and what he wants is for all people to have a chance at repentance. So Messiah is going to come. He's going to break through. He's going to show the marvelous light. But judgment is not going to be immediate. It's going to be delayed. Jesus is going to come first as the suffering servant, but he will surely come as the conquering king, just not immediately. So John's faced with a choice, and we're faced with the same choice. John's got to decide, Jesus says he's Messiah. Am I going to place my faith in him, even though he doesn't look quite like I thought he would? And it's the same thing for us, because when we look at Messiahs, the world tells us all sorts of Messiahs that we should put our faith in. But what Jesus tells us here is, I am Messiah. God's plan is perfect. And when you don't understand, you've still got to place your faith in me, because of my track record of character and of truth and what God gives us in his plan. We've got to trust that God is sovereign and he's sovereignly working his plan together for both our good and for his glory. It's like one of the great tapestries that we see. Sometimes when you look at it from the backside, all it looks like is a mesh of thread and yarn and it doesn't, it just looks like a jumble, right? But if you go on the other side of it, you see a beautiful picture that somebody's put a lot of time in. It's like Pastor Jason has quoted for us before that when we look at a world like it is now on the brink of war, that everything looks like it's falling apart. The world is disintegrating. But in God's perspective, everything, in fact, is falling into place because he is sovereign and his plan is perfect and his will is good. 
And only if we rest in who God is and in his sovereignty and proven character and the truth that he gives us through his word are we able to weather the storms of life well. This was hit home to me recently. Um, For those of you that frequent social media, there's a recent trend on places like YouTube and Facebook and some of the others where there are former believers who talk about a deconstructing of their faith, and they talk about a deconstructing journey. And normally what that means is that they take the faith that they had at another point in their life, and they tell a story of asking critical questions about that because they're dissatisfied with something or they think it's too harsh or whatever. And as they walk through, they normally strip away things from their faith and end up with something that they think will be more acceptable to modern culture. And this was driven home to me with two guys that I worked with at Campus Crusade for Christ. These two men were regional-level evangelism trainers, and they were sent around the Mid-South region, which were the Carolinas and Tennessee and Kentucky, and they shared Christ with lots and lots of people. But I was able to watch a video of their deconstruction journey. And as they talked about deconstructing their faith over a four-hour period, it basically boiled down to a couple of different things. It boiled down to the fact that they didn't believe the creation narrative anymore. And they thought that God's sexual ethic was too harsh and just didn't fit in the modern culture anymore. In the midst of talking about how they no longer believed in the creation narrative, one of them had the arrogance to say, I know people want to send me articles about this, but I've read everything there is to read, and my position is solid. There's nothing I could read that would make me change the way I think about this. And this gets more sinister because the last part of this discussion where they talked about deconstructing their faith, they discussed how when they took these concerns to their wives and to their children, their wives were faithful believers, but they saw their husbands drifting away and they essentially discipled their wives and children out of the faith through tears and harsh times and conversations that ended, uh, ended with them leaving the faith. As a father, that's sinister to me because I know that one of the main things I'm called to is to make sure that my wife and my children know who Jesus is. Absolutely. That if I failed at everything else and they know who Jesus is, I've, I've been a good dad. So when I hear stories like this, it's very deep and hurtful to me. But the strange thing was, at the end of this whole conversation, they said, but we know, we know that when we were kids, we had a real, quote-unquote, experience in church. So uh, even if we're wrong, we're covered because of perseverance of the saints. Now, let's just set aside for a second the illogical nature of that feeling. But let's think about the arrogance that it takes to look at God and say, um, yeah, you know what, God? I've been reading the creation narrative and I uh, don't think it's true anymore. So I'm going to reject what you say in your word and I'm going to place my faith in human wisdom instead. And oh, by the way, your standard for righteousness, particularly sexual ethics, 
Too harsh. Doesn't fit in our modern culture. They even mentioned that in the area where they live, churches can't preach it anymore because it's not economically viable. That if they did, they would lose too many members and not be able to keep their budget. But to sit there and say, your standard of righteousness is too harsh, and then to answer by saying, you need to change God, not me. I don't need to conform myself to what you say. I need you to conform to what my culture says instead. That's the story of mankind. That's what happened in the garden. That's what humanity has said all throughout time. I'm going to reject you as my creator, perfect king, and instead I'm going to trust in my own wisdom. And then to end it by saying, oh, and by the way, I did the right ritual when I was a kid. So even if I'm wrong, you still owe me salvation. I cannot look into these men's hearts. But I can tell you that the mark of a true believer is bearing the fruit of repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is not that fruit. In fact, this is the height of damnable arrogance to look at God and say these things. And it's a way that only leads to death. There is no life there. But let me encourage you, that kind of arrogance is entirely different than honestly looking at God and saying, I don't understand. I don't understand why this has happened. I don't understand why you set the world in motion this way. And I don't understand why I've had to deal with these things. But God, help me in my unbelief. I'm going to trust and rest my life on you instead of my own wisdom, even if I don't understand. See, doubts are common to the human experience, but what matters is where we go for the answers. They're challenges, but they're not dangerous unless we go to the wrong sources to get the answers we need. We've got to choose that even when we don't understand, we've got to rest in the sovereignty of God and in his good plan and purposes and say, you're the God that saved me. And this is difficult now, and it may not get any better. But even if it does not, I am going to rest and praise in you than in my own wisdom. It's like Job at the end of his book. Finally, at the end, he goes to God and he asks why. After staying faithful with the Lord the entire time, he legitimately wants to know, why have I experienced all this pain? And God doesn't directly answer him. What God says is, lovingly and affectionately, Job, I'm God. And you're not. So there's things that I understand that you don't. But you know that I love you. And you know that I am the source of your blessings. And you know that you've had a relationship with me. So in me is safety, even if you don't get the answers that you want. So God calls us to express our honest doubt, and he calls us to go to the right places for answers, and he calls us to rest in him, even if we don't understand. Everyone struggles with doubts. It's not wrong to express the doubts we're experiencing, but it's wrong to go to the wrong places for the wrong answers, even if we don't fully understand. So for believers, we're blessed with the hope that we have that we're resting on God's sovereignty and his goodness, ultimately demonstrated by Jesus Christ. And we have that hope because we've placed faith in him by repentance and faith. He's infinite. We are finite, and that's, and that's frustrating. But even in that frustration, we can rest in who he is.
And this hope is only available to those that know Jesus. So all the hope I've been talking about and who God is, maybe you're here tonight, maybe you're watching online and you think, I don't, I don't know what kind of hope that is. Please come talk to us. As pastors, one of the best things we ever get to do is share the gospel with somebody and see them trust, trust Jesus. You can do it now by praying and admitting your sin and believing in who God is and repenting and placing your faith from yourself into him. And that can be yours now. It's a decision everybody's got to make, just like John. Are we going to believe Messiah as he is presented through God's plan, or are we going to wait for a Messiah of our own making?